Hi, I'm Paul Jay, and welcome to the Analysis.News podcast. So my guest today is, well, me, uh, Luke Alden, who's a, a viewer and supporter, and he's an activist and lives in Rome. He's American, but he's been there for a couple of decades. He wrote me and said he'd like to interview me, and I get figured, okay, well, let's try it. So Luke is on the line with me, and Luke is actually going to be the host, and I'm, I'm turning it over to him. I just one message from me before I do, which is the analysis.news only exists because people are donating. Uh, we don't have any really big donors and we really need people to contribute. And so if, if you are so motivated and haven't donated yet, uh, you'll find the donate button somewhere. Or if you're listening to this on one of the podcast platforms, just come to the analysis.news and you'll find a, a donate button there. Anyway, without any further to do, uh, Luke Alden is an educator. He's a school teacher. He's a political activist. He, as I said, he lives in Rome, and he's been involved for a decade in campaigns with local and international groups on issues of war and military spending, austerity, climate, U.S.-Israeli aggression in Palestine. And uh, so now over to you. You, Luke's now the host. Okay, Paul. So Paul Jay, as I'm sure most of you know, is an individual uh, for me with one of the most insightful and incisive fact-based and, and non-doctrinal independent analyses and overviews of the current global political economy that I've heard in media. Uh, and he's known in the world as a documentary filmmaker and journalist, as a former creator and producer of Canadian CBC's Counterspin, as the founder of the Real News Network in Baltimore, and currently is the creator of the Analysis.News podcast, where he conducts some of the most instructive interviews you'll find out there at the moment. He's also currently working with Daniel Ellsberg on a documentary series based on Ellsberg's 2018 book, The Doomsday Machine and Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner. So I wanted to chat with Paul about, uh, apart from his own work, the depth of the crises we're currently facing, uh, the prospects for maybe getting out of them, and what lessons of the past and left movements and media we may want to learn from. So thanks very much for, for taking the time again to talk with me today, Paul, and for your insight you have to offer, for, offer us. Thank you, Luke. All right. So we have a global pandemic, of course, uh, the likes of which unseen in a century medieval level inequality, reminding us more recently of the 1930s, financial crash after financial crash in recent decades, the explosion of debt, sustained attacks on welfare state measures, the tearing apart of the Middle East and other parts of the world through illegal war after illegal war on the part of the U.S., coups and attempting coups backed by the U.S. and South America and beyond, systemic institutional racism, the increase of nuclear disaster, and a climate catastrophe the likes of which humanity has never seen, all accompanied by misdirected anger, fear, and confusion. This all characterizes not only the current state of things, but increasingly at least the last 40 years in investors' rights globalized state capitalism, commonly referred to as the neoliberal period, where a very substantial increase in the concentration of wealth, according to all international body figures, has produced a perhaps unprecedented increase in political power and a turn to the right. However, at the same time, despite a considerable degree of despair among some, some sectors of the left and in popular movements, the fact is this same period, since the 60s, let's say, has seen a remarkable increase in consciousness, 
It may be hard for younger activists who may feel alone and losing hope to recognize this, but an anti-war movement, an opposition to aggression, anti-nuclear movements, women's movements, third world solidarity movements, the environmental movement, and so on, simply didn't exist before the 60s. And they've had a dramatic impact on society since, not to mention the mass proliferation of new popular organizations, movements, and media, especially since the 2008 financial crisis and the Occupy movement. Uh, which we'll get into if you'd like in a bit, time permitting. So, Paul, speaking on these broad themes, we know which of these two tendencies has the upper hand right now. So tell me first and foremost, if uh, which side, um, first of all, if you if you agree with this assessment overall, and um, which side uh, for you may have better overall prospects um, uh, for success in the coming decade. Uh, on one hand, a more conscious population on the whole, taking initiative and asserting itself, or on the other hand, economic and political elites more and more calcified and unresponsive to popular currents for democracy? I don't know. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good one. Interesting thing Engels said uh, towards the end of his life, and he said one of the biggest problems they had, he was talking about the prediction where they thought there'd be uh, a larger scale working class revolution in Europe and there would be a socialist revolution of uh, some scale. Uh, more, they, they expected more than what happened. And he said that one of the reasons is that their data was always so far behind the moment they were in. And this is, you know, before the internet, it took a lot, a lot longer to get economic data. Um, I don't think we quite know what is the capacity of the Fed to just keep floating money and putting off the real depth of the crisis, especially in the heart of the empire. So just imagine in the United States, if there'd been no pat no bailout package at all when they had to close down the economy uh, because of the pandemic, uh, just imagine no propping up of the stock market, uh, no buying up corporate bonds, um, the no no subsidies to unemployed workers, um, the depth of the crash would have made the 1930s look like a tea party. And, and, and as it is, it's already in many ways worse than the 1930s. Um, but the ability of the Fed, and it's not just they're making up money. Uh, they are, but it's not just that. They're making up money, in my opinion, as a reflection of the accumulated wealth in the society. They're not really making up more money than there is wealth in the society. There's trillions and trillions of dollars in private hands. According to the Brookings Institute, American households held over $98 trillion of wealth in 2018. That's assets minus total liabilities. And 77% of that wealth is in the hands of the top 10% of the population. So the wealth is there, and someday one would think they're going to want to pay down the government debt. They don't, may not have to, but they may want to, and if they do decide they want to, it's going to be because the wealthy require it. Of course, it's most the working class that will, they will want to tax more and indirectly tax by cutting and privatizing public services, charging fees for things that are now covered by taxes. 
For now, Wall Street seems to have little trouble with more infusion of Fed and government cash, especially when it's propping up the stock and bond markets. But not every country can create so much money because very few countries have so much wealth. Perhaps the European Union, China, uh, countries like Canada, you know, a few others here and there. But many countries in Asia and certainly in Africa and Latin America don't have the wealth to just make up that kind of money. And the reason they can't make up that kind of money is because the bondholders, the creditor countries, will simply hold them to ransom. You know, you could say any country can just print more money, make up money, but you can't if you're dependent on international investment. Because there's a point where they're going to say, well, no, we won't invest in your country. We'll take our money somewhere else because we don't believe your currency is worth anything anymore because you just made it all up. They can't say that to the United States at this point. One, because the whole system depends on U.S. dollars anyway. But more, they've not created more money than there actually is accumulated wealth, in a sense, to back it up. And, and they also have a military to back up their positioning in the world and so on. So when you ask who's going to win here, it's a sort of similar thing as what Engels said, is I don't know if we know how deep this crisis gets and how long or what is the capacity to keep throwing money at it if they have to. Now, the Republicans have looked at the situation and they think, well, you know what? We actually didn't see a big rise in any working class movement. The anti-racist stuff in the cities, yeah, it created a stir, but it's not threatening in the sense that look at the NBA can adopt all the slogans. So it, it doesn't have much of an anti-capitalist character. There's an underlying in it, you could say. There's certainly activists within the uh, within the movement that get the connection between racism and capitalism. On the whole, it's one of these things that society, capitalist society in the United States, it can absorb it. It can live with it, especially when the Democrats are in power and they can pay lip service to the demand for racial justice. The police murders of black men caught on video did cause a shift in public opinion. The protests across the country did awaken people who live in a bubble and were in denial of the daily brutal violence suffered by black people across the country. I was more or less one of those people myself until I lived in Baltimore for eight years. If you don't live surrounded by the violence, it's really out of sight, out of mind. So there will be some response to the protests across the country. Some necessary reforms will be passed, like some measures to mitigate police violence. But little will be done about the underlying problem, which is chronic poverty and low wages. Ages. Why? Because of the profits made from exploiting black and Latino cheap labor are just too significant to give up. It's the super exploitation of the cheap labor of workers of color that is at the heart of systemic racism. So as much as people say black lives matter, profits matter more. So there's not yet a mass movement with a consciousness and strength that threatens the status quo in a fundamental way. The question of what happens if there is a second or third shutdown of the economy, how much more propping up the Fed can do, I'm not sure anyone really knows. The corporate Democrats realize there has to be more subsidy, more stimulus, because they need to please their urban voters to some extent.
extent to gain and keep power. They understand the consequences of not propping up consumer demand and not just the stock market. There'll be a deeper depression. And they fear that the mass movement will get radicalized. The Republicans fear more that poor people won't go back to work for such lousy low wages and believe that with law and order, and that means brutal force, they can control any resistance that develops. So if Biden gets elected, the Democrats will throw more money at the situation and get closer to an FDR-ish kind of plan. I don't think they'll go nearly as far as FDR, especially no large-scale direct government hiring. Like Obama, Biden will keep the money in the private sector, and Biden won't move in the direction of public ownership of key sectors, as to some extent FDR did. But that said, how far can they go? Will they go? Especially if or when a second wave of pandemic hits and there are more lockdowns. So I don't know. It's a crucial question because if there is another shutdown or if the current high unemployment continues and the cities and states descend further into massive debts and the cutting of services, then the extreme right is in a better position than the left to take advantage of the mass unrest. If Biden wins and Wall Street runs his economic policy and the Fed money goes mostly to corporations and the stock markets and large numbers of workers are dispossessed, then Trump or another Trump type can emerge and the situation becomes even more dangerous. On the other hand, if there's a slow but steady recovery and massive amounts of Fed funding prevents a deeper depression, then maybe the left has more time to organize and get ready for the next great shock, which is sure to come. I'm encouraged by the Bernie Sanders campaign and progressives like AOC that have been elected. They are leaders of a mass movement with an electoral strategy. And with time... This movement for a Green New Deal could develop with a much larger mass base. New leaders are coming forward in the anti-racist struggle. As significant as the 2020 elections are, 2024 may even be more important. It requires organizing in workplaces, in unions, schools, communities. And I know there are activists doing this now. And it requires a fight with the corporate leadership of the Democratic Party, inside the party and outside of it. The current temporary truce will end. If Trump loses, that fight against corporate Democrats will be renewed with force. There needs to be a popular front, a real membership organization with national scale outside of the Democratic Party. In the long run, the Democratic Party will never be the vehicle for transformative change. But we need to be realistic about what's possible now and realistic about what's possible within the center of the empire. At this point, the difference between Republican austerity and big stimulus spending that goes to working people, if the Democrats do it, is of great importance, not just for people's daily lives, but because of the threat of fascism if the economic crisis gets worse. Which party controls the Senate will make a big difference. Wall Street's counting on the Republicans to control the Senate, and gridlock will prevent any policies they don't like. The bottom line is it matters a great deal whether Trump loses and the Dems control both houses. But that doesn't guarantee a progressive outcome. It's just a better field of battle for working people and progressives to fight on. So yeah, people have to make sure that the Democrats and Biden win this election without having any illusions about who Biden and the Democrats are. At the same time, 
You can't stay aloof from this. You can't uh, think it doesn't matter. I mean, you can think it, but if you do, you're really, if you act that way, uh, contributing to the rise of fascism. And that's not to say there isn't a danger of fascism. Uh, anyway, the, you know, the situation may get where the Democrats are capable of some pretty horrible things. So let's not forget the Vietnam War. But for now, it's a, like I said, it's a better field of battle with the Democrats in power at this point in history. And there's another piece to it, which is the, at least in the United States, uh, the American left, and I should say this is true in too many places around the world, and maybe everywhere, is so segmented, is so siloed. There's terrible sectarianism. I, I don't know if there's a single country where a, a, a powerful, you, you, political progressive force has emerged with a unifying message with a broad coalition of forces, which at the heart though, has a working class, you know, class perspective, but able to build a broad front against fascism and so on. I don't know if it exists anywhere. And and honestly, I'm not entirely sure why it hasn't emerged anywhere. Uh, I always thought something like it might happen in Brazil, and 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 maybe it will. But right now, I'm told the left in Brazil isn't, you know, is is somewhat similar to the left everywhere else. And uh, so, so the answer is, I don't know. But I, I also know we have no damn time to find out because of the climate crisis. There is simply no time for a kind of evolution of the politics. Uh, you know, what do we have, you know, less than a decade to avoid getting to 1.5 degrees? And the way we're going, it ain't happening. Uh, so the, the, we're, we're really on course to hit two degrees by, who knows, 2030, 2040, maybe. On, on, it's actually looking now, 2050 would be the outside. It's probably sooner. If you hit two degrees... The odds of hitting three, and then, and they're now predicting by the end of the century, without a, a really radical change of the, of the economy and energy policy, that by the end of the century we could be hitting four, five, and even one of the predictions gets us up to six and seven degrees. Well, that that's an unlivable Earth. You know, at the very least, we're looking at it in the lifetime of our children that most of the planet is unlivable. So what does that mean? It means most of the population of the South has to go North. I mean, just imagine that. And the lack of recognition of the urgency amongst the elites is just mind boggling that even, you know, in their, in their own most narrow interest, it's, it's just shocking. So, so the answer is all I know is we don't have a hell of a lot of time and, 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 it, you know, we got to, uh, uh, Dan Ellsberg has a great idea, a great way of saying this. He says, we have to act as if we can do it. Absolutely. absolutely. Well, that's a theme where we're certainly going to come back to if we have more time. We'll, we'll definitely come back to it, at least at the end of uh, this little talk. But uh, that is a certain certain theme. And it's uh, in terms of um, the left movements being fragmented. That's another huge theme that's uh, tormented so many, so many of us for so many years. And um 
Yeah, if we don't overcome that, then uh, I don't see where, where our chances are. But we'll come back to that, as I said, Paul. Um, right now, if you don't mind, just a few words about yourself here. Um, you said uh, at the Left Forum, I remember a few years back in New York City, um, that one of the, one of the media's duties should not be just to interpret, but to change the world, uh, along with what we're, what we're speaking about here. And um, we can get uh, much more into what you see as the media's role and what it should be in a moment. But I'm first wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your own voice from wanting to just interpret the world uh, to being a part of changing it, to wanting to be a part of changing it. And uh, as per your uh, your uh, reality asserts itself interviews in the past, uh, I was wondering what flipped the switch for you in terms of your own consciousness being raised as a young man. Like, did you grow up in a, in a particularly politically active family? Or, tell us a little bit about that. Uh, I. I always, I did grow up in a political household. My my father and mother were both involved with. Um, my father worked with the mine mill trade union, was the left wing communist led union in the late nineteen forties. Uh, my mother grew up in a Republican household, but she became an actor, an actor, and then moved to Hollywood and got radicalized and wound up in the circles of the Hollywood Ten. Uh, they came back to Canada because of the House of Un-American Activities Committee. They were afraid of getting uh, named and, and maybe my father getting deported. My mother was American. My father was Canadian. And uh, so they came back to Toronto. And uh, so I, I grew up in a milieu. Uh, they, they were, I, I would have to say, a little reticent about being ov- too overtly political. I, I, I think my mother especially was a little got a little intimidated by McCarthyism and, and such and was afraid of not being able to work in Canada because ca- Canada was not as exaggerated uh, in terms of uh, McCarthy-type tactics, but it certainly existed. And she was working in the media, and, and there, were, there were media people who were, um, uh, couldn't get work here because they were considered too left-wing in that. Um, my father left Mine Mill disillusioned, actually, with the Communist Party, which led Mine Mill. He thought they rigged an election in, at the Inco Mine in Sudbury. And one of his jobs as a business agent was to register the results of that election. And he later found out that he thought the election was rigged and, and was very pissed off that they had gotten him to register the results. But also, he, he was very angry at them for capitulating to the steelworkers. It's a long story, but the CIA worked through a guy named Hal Banks, who was the head of the Seafarers Union, to, to, purge, to purge the Canadian Union of the left as an extension. The, the real target of McCarthyism, uh, as opposed to the House of Un-American Activities Committee, uh, the real target was the trade unions and to purge the unions of the left. And it was as true in Canada as it was in the U.S. And so uh, the leaders of the Communist Party at the big Inco mine, um, they kind of made a sweetheart deal with steel where the individual leaders got cushy jobs with steel and they let steel come in and, or- and kick mine mill out of Inco. And... Um, and my father didn't like that either, and he quit. So, and then he got a job at another union, and and after six months, they the even though the executive, which was very very progressive, um, loved him, 
a couple of very well-known people, this was a media union, a couple of very well-known people in the media got him fired because of his previous connection to Mine Mill. And But so anyway, I grew up in a household where real things were talked about. I, I read newspapers at a young age and so on. And I always had kind of a, a political orientation. Yeah, but somewhere along the line, I got, I, I worked as a, you know, my first jobs were all working class jobs. I, I quit school really before I finished high school and I didn't go to university. I, I drove a truck for the post office for three years and I fixed freight cars on the railroad for five years on midnight shift as a carman mechanic. Um, and I got, I got, I got, I guess I got kind of radicalized myself while I was working and, uh, and then got into filmmaking and so on. And it's a long story, but uh, the, my filmmaking and then getting into the real news has all been an education for me. And I've gotten a chance to talk to a lot of smart people. Could you possibly say whether uh, you were more radicalized in the end by, by your parents' experiences or by your own experiences, uh, you know, as a working class? Oh, I would say, I really, the, the, the thing that radicalized me most, I suppose I've jumped right over it was the Vietnam war. And that, yeah, I mean, I got caught up in the, in the protests and, uh, I started a nonprofit record store in Toronto in 1969. I was supposed to go to film school in 1970. I got accepted to the London School of Film Technique. I had a. I was so young they made me wait a year before I could get in. And uh, during that year, the you know they bombed Cambodia and, and so on. And I, I and my record store became a big center of. Uh, people who were involved in progressive politics. So I started meeting people. So I would say it's more of my own experiences than, than through my parents. And the, uh, and when I, I guess the, the most radicalizing thing in many ways was for the first time I met people that when you asked the question about what was going on, they would give a historical perspective. That was really interesting. That was just fascinating because I, I, I didn't know the history other than, you know, what, BS I'd learned in school. So, yeah, I would say my own, my own experiences. Okay. Okay. And certainly things all coming back to context there. Uh, how we can understand anything uh, without context is uh, forget about it. Right? But um, speaking of films there, again, just for a little parenthesis, uh, you think your uh, your filmmaking could have a bigger impact or your role as a journalist? No, that's a big open-ended question in itself, but, uh, you know, at least in your own life. There. Well, it, it depends. My, my films were not overtly political. They were sort of indirectly, meaning like my wrestling film, which was, I guess, the film that made the biggest impression because it aired on television everywhere and went to festivals everywhere. Hitman Heart, Wrestling with Shadows, which you can find on the analysis.news website. Um, it was about, are you naive if you think there's more to life than money, than making money? So it was about that theme. My film on Las Vegas is on the face of it about two guys that impersonate a Blues Brothers routine but it was really about Las Vegas as the, the shape of things to come. If you're going to live in a society which is about neoliberal economics, and I got to say, I actually don't like that phrase, neoliberal. So maybe you can ask me about that. So, but, but on the other hand, my films had mainstream 
power. I was on all the major networks. And also the, the television show you mentioned in the intro, Counterspin, which I exec produced for 10 years, uh, that was on CBC's news channel. So again, mainstream distribution. In fact, there's never been anything before or after on mainstream Canadian television where the left got a real say on things. That, that show was really quite unique. Um, so in terms of broader influence, when I was doing stuff within the mass media, mainstream mass media, it had more influence. In terms of clarity of analysis and my own evolution in terms of understanding what's going on in the world, uh, doing the real news and now doing the and now the analysis and even in some ways more the analysis because I get a chance really to focus on my own work and 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 in the format that's longer I get to go deeper. Um, so in terms of presenting a, a more clarity of analysis, but I what I really want to do and I, in some ways I hope the Ellsberg film is that is bring the two together. Uh, the Ellsberg film we're hoping is like a, a, a Netflix or HBO, like a, a major mass platform. But now bring to that what I've learned during during these more recent years. Okay, thanks. Thanks for listening to uh, Paul J and I. I'm Luke Alden here in Rome and uh, listen in for the next uh, installment of uh, our conversation. Thanks. Mm-hmm.